Welcome to Plants and Pipettes. We're back after one week where we just did not record and didn't tell anybody about it. Um, because Yoram and I had some small issues small. going on. Yeah, I, mean, for me, uh, I felt you want to do your one first. Yeah, because mine is the smallest story. I just had one wisdom tooth removed um, and my jaw is still hurting. It's like over a week now um, and I'm still in pain. I still am on a lot of painkillers every day. Um, Seriously? Yeah. Like every day I'm taking like roughly 1800 milligrams of ibuprofen over the day that's and that's a lot of ibuprofen around a thousand milligrams of paracetamol over the day like how do you even get that in germany usually in germany if you're like i have pain i like here to have some chamomile tea uh, how did you even get access to this like stash i of, got a prescription for some 600 milligrams Whoa. ibuprofens um i have some paracetamol that i brought from france and from the uk that is like higher dose than the stuff that you get here so I have yep. like some 500 milligram uh, from boots. Drug trafficking. Very good. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and I had some like leftover uh, from like other cases when I got prescriptions but didn't need them as much. And so I could eat them now. Uh, but yeah, it's very annoying. It's like one of these things that are absolutely harmless and will pass with time. But it's just so annoying to have constant toothache. And um mm. Yeah, every every meal afterwards, I'm in a lot of pain, so I don't really want to eat anymore. I mean, which is sort of fine. I don't move a lot, so it's okay that I don't eat a lot either. Yeah, but it's just not enjoyable. I'm just not, it's it's a little bit miserable. This yeah. Um. Well, shout out to science for and den- modern dentistry for making it that most of us live our life relatively pain free <laughs> as far as our teeth go. Because that would be unfun. I mean, back in the day, what sucking a clove was pretty much the alternative to toothache, yeah. that or pulling out the tooth. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I crashed my bicycle like last Sunday, which was very stupid of me. It was very low speed, and I'm fine. But I did smash my face up pretty bad, and um, that's not ideal. And I did look a little bit like a chipmunk for a few days, and now I have something that looks like quite impressive black eye although it's mostly gone now yeah i can't Um, really tell i have to say like from the video i I wouldn't know really yeah so it's got to the stage where i now look like a human being anymore but that was like quite embarrassing and very painful and also very unideal in times of covid especially because the reason i crashed my bicycle was because i was trying to avoid people and avoid using like taxis and stuff to carry lots of things because i didn't want to (laughs) have any risk of covid and then in the end i ended up in hospital and Mostly I felt very, very guilty about using the public health system at a time when people who are much more like in need should be using it instead of stupid people who ride their bicycle and fall off it within like in a car park, like literally in a car park I fell off. Uh, Um, Otherwise I would have said it's also the city's fault for not having proper bike infrastructure. It was was nobody's fault except for my own. It was Uh, like 300% my fault. No shifting Um, the blame. There was nothing. um, But anyway, it's all fine. But that's why we didn't bother coming on last week and we didn't tell anybody in advance because we were both feeling sorry for ourselves. And I also smashed my teeth a little bit. So I have a wire in my teeth. So I'm doing like the alternative um, diet that Yoram is also doing where my teeth are awkward and I have to only eat soup. So (laughs) yeah, I guess that's 
I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really enjoying soup right now. That's all I can say. Like I've, I've I've discovered a whole new world of soup. That's pretty much <laughs> the silver lining of um of the situation. Yeah, I w- I wish that soup would help me. Uh, because for me, it's whatever I eat, I am in pain afterwards. So I can eat normally, but it also means there's no food that I can eat to avoid the pain. Like mm. even drinking water is sort of annoying. It's just anything that goes yeah. to my teeth is, yeah. Um, so yeah, yours hope- sounds more, Mine, I have no pain. So I think yours sounds definitely worth. Mine is like inconvenient and stupid, but not actually painful. But yeah. I might just be the stronger human being than you. So maybe <laughs> like I just can withstand the immense pain of my own stupidity <laughs> better than you can. Um. Yeah, probably. Probably my, yeah. my pain threshold is very low. Anyway, I hope you guys out there, I hope you're doing much better than we are in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> and also, because this is coming out tomorrow, which is Friday, happy May Day! It's May the 1st. Um, hope you're all enjoying the start of spring, as it traditionally was, or um, the start of autumn if you're in the southern hemisphere i guess although not really the start because equinox but whatever it's may day it's in may germany day. it's a public holiday right so yeah yeah and we can't really do anything for it usually may day is is one of my favorite holidays first of all it's like working class holiday where there's like demonstrations in the streets and and so on which i support and then there's often music then there is like a big festival with like in the streets then there, usually the weather is nice enough that you can hang around in the parks nothing of that this year it's all sitting at home so like i the think other that's weeks. no that's the wrong attitude i think you should say it is the day of of the dancing and the music i mean today i put on common people very loudly from is it pulp common people I don't know. it's a great song i should really know who it's by Old and dance music. <laughs> and dance terribly yes pulp um dance terribly to that in my bedroom with my headphones on so that my housemate wouldn't be too embarrassed um but yeah spend the time dancing around your living room with your family or friends or house plants or the dust that's been collecting because you haven't bothered cleaning your house for the last six weeks that's actually Whatever. a very good point that's a good point i think um i'll i'll celebrate it somehow actually no i won't celebrate it i will be sitting down working because tomorrow is my off day where i can do work that's not taking care of the baby so that's what i what i will be doing correcting a thesis and doing some work that i get paid for so yay Woo. shall we do the paper of the week yes the paper of the week before Yoram introduced the title and the authors of the paper I want to do some random word association which comes from this paper and the <laughs> words are milk caramel sweet grassy woody chrysanthemum beef jerky fruity roasted old perfume lime and the question is, what is the um, theme that draws <laughs> all of these words, which is pretty much all of the words describing smell and taste, um, together? I, I mean, I know what it's about, but it can't, honestly, it could be any pretentious tasting club. It could be wine. It could be <laughs> gin. It could be um, w- whiskey. Uh, and it could also be coffee. I refuse to drink any alcohol without like describing it with the the descriptor oaky. Like no matter what it is, if it's gin or if it's like clear spirits or like whiskey, I'm like mmm oaky mm. <laughs> because I know it's nothing about any alcohol. It's very oaky. 
Um, I really getting those oaky tastes. Mmm, it uh, must be barrel something. No, I, my go-to is astringent. Just like, oh, it's, a, <laughs> it's like a beautiful contrasting astringent taste. Um, hmm. You can say that pretty much to anything that's not just pure su- sugar. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is actually about coffee, as your arm kind of already um, gave away there. What's the title of the paper? Um, the title of the paper is "You Played with My Notes." It's gone. <laughs> no, it hasn't. Slow it development. <laughs> Slow development of lower canopy beans produce better coffee. Uh, from the Journal of Experimental Botany, um, first author is Bing Cheng uh, from the lab of Robert J. N. Henry. Um, and if I actually click on the link, then I can also tell you where they're from. They're from um, the University of Queensland in Australia. Woohoo! Represent. Yeah, Australia. I'm done. Um, yeah. And the reason we chose this paper is actually because we didn't cho- choose the paper. Somebody on our Twitter feed very kindly recommended that we should read this paper. So shout out to Adriana. I'm not going to say the full name or the Twitter tag because I didn't get her permission, but... Um, Thank you very much for thinking of us and just right. generally commenting on our Did, podcast. Yeah, um, and that's always very welcome. If people send us in uh, suggestions and the papers are interesting, then we're very happy to um, follow follow up and actually do this. Um, so before Yoram dives into the introduction of this paper, I think now is a really good time to state that the views are my own. Yoram, take it away. <laughs> Um, uh, by the way, I think uh, Ariana said she can that we can share her name. She replied on ah. Twitter. Did you see that? No, did she? Okay. Uh, you can share my name if you want. It said at a Trotzenberg. Then is um, her Twitter handle. So thank you very much for your comments, Adriana. So the the point of this paper, like so many plant papers when they deal with crops, is also talking about climate change. And I don't mean that in a way that it's like an old story. It's just like a very um, pressing topic. It's just something that affects a lot of processes in many different ways. And we covered a couple of them here on the podcast already. And in this paper, it's specifically about rapidly changing um, climates and microclimates um, f- that affect crop plants but also wild species and for wild species um, we could say as long as we can grow our crops we don't really care about what happens to like wild relatives to our crops but in plant breeding we often rely on a genetic material from wild species to cross into our crops to um, change up the genetic makeup to get more sort of fresh genetic material in there and even some traits where we don't understand where they're coming from to cross them into our crop lines so something like resistances possi- uh, like abilities to grow at certain uh, conditions uh, these things often are not fully understood and that's why we just take a plant that's good in growing in the cold and then we cross it into our related crop species and hope that it will also be better at growing in the cold but we don't know how that works but with climate change these wild species are endangered more and more and so we also lose potential to um, improving our crops and that's why it's very important to work on the understanding of the traits in our crops so that even if we lose wild relatives uh, we can still work with the genetic material because we have a direct understanding of which genes are responsible for what trait and this is sort of the general idea in in this paper how they so that started studying coffee. Yeah, this is kind of as as Yoram said. There's there's often a couple of justifications we use as plant scientists to rationalize why our research has importance for the the, the broader world, and one of them is often feeding the planet. 
Um, we need to feed more mouths. That's why we need to understand better how crops work. Obviously, that doesn't work very well with coffee because people are not getting calories from coffee generally. Um, so this is kind of taking the climate change angle. This paper isn't a lot about climate change, but I actually quite like it from having coffee from a climate change point of view because I think the idea that climate change is coming for your coffee is actually something that could get world leaders invested in dealing with climate change. Like, There's a lot of people out there who either still ignore climate change or think it's not happening or more of them who like know it's happening but don't want to deal with it and I think like if you told like Trump hey you're not going to be able to have an espresso in the morning if you don't deal with this shit like this actually might be uh, an angle that he can understand it's probably not going to go like work for all of the leaders because I'm pretty sure that like the Angela drinks Club Mate I'm sure that she's not drinking like espresso like the rest of us she's probably drinking more espresso than Donald Trump who's probably has like a Dunkin Donuts like Frappuccino or like doesn't he eat like a lot of McDonald's I reckon yeah. Angela Merkel is like getting the the Club Mate, which it's like a. Um, she, she has one of these Germany, like, this, like brass Mate fizzy. cups with the straw, and then she's like constantly sucking this, and everybody's annoyed at her. And she brings like her ho- <laughs> own hot water, and she's like slurping like. No, but that's ma- like that's like Mate tea, which is also um, it's it's a tea, a South South American um tea that has a high caffeine content. But there's also like a a carbonated sugary beverage based on this tea called Club Mate which is very popular like in the Berlin region and I reckon Angie is cool enough to have that as her caffeine source (laughs) I would say also that the Australian Prime Minister is probably just skipping it all together and going with like a caffeine pill like he just like gets up in the morning he's too lazy to drink the coffee and just like shoves a no-dose in his face and (laughs) gets on with it but anyway I like the whole like you need to think about climate change if you want to drink coffee angle of it. Yeah, and coffee is very much endangered. Um, It is estimated that about 50% of the current coffee growth areas will be lost by 2050 due to climate change. Um, At least that's according to some studies in the past because there's also some evidence showing that rising CO2 levels that go along with the rise in temperatures um, and during the climate uh, crisis um, will help coffee to adapt better to warmer climates. So there might be like not the entire 50% loss but still there is a threat of a significant loss of of growth area. Um, And it's a very important crop in the global south. So um, it has massive economic impact if uh, the world would lose these coffee growth uh, areas. Yeah, I found that carbon dioxide thing a little bit unclear. I think this wasn't a reference to this, the normal climate change thing that increased carbon dioxide can kind of act to help fertilize this like carbon dioxide fertilizer and improve plant productivity. I think in this case, it was a separate thing, which was based on a previous study that um, carbon dioxide actually helps to like stimulate the acclimatization of coffee plants to um, higher heat. So when they have higher temperatures, they will actually anyway already be kind of predisposed to deal with those higher temperatures. Um, But I didn't look too much into that previous research, to be honest. Yeah. And so, yeah, this paper is about coffee and the flavor of coffee, which um, brought in an interesting point to me in in research because this is 
uh, not not the straight not no straightforward is the wrong word here, but it's not like the clean um, mechanical testing that that you often read in in papers uh, where you have like a measurement machine and you put in your samples and you get like a readout and you can analyze this. Here it's about sensory qualities and um, so they did. In fairness, they did the machine stuff as well. They did the machine stuff as well, but. Um, like some of the testing facilities were human, uh, to say. They say. They say we adopted a consumer-based approach to understand the the quality of the product, which yeah, which I find I, very I important. Think, I think it's very good. Like it's it's better than like a very clean clinical approach where you just say like yeah, this compound is up, I don't know, five percent, and therefore the coffee tastes better or worse. Um, yeah, what does that even mean? Because like, yeah, it's much more complex. I think this is like a very legit thing and it's a really good way to approach yep. this kind of crop, especially. But a part of me also thinks that the researchers were very wide on caffeine during the whole of this study. Like I've seen, <laughs> you know, you see some of these um, people when they show photographs of their field site, they're like, oh, I'm doing sampling of this really important like ecological process. And then they show a photo and it's like some Hawaiian island with like crystal blue waters. And you're like, did you really want to like study that obscure like marine <laughs> snail that's only found there or did you want to go there and then you found out about that snail like <laughs> I look <laughs> it's great yeah yeah um so the main the main driving forces to coffee flavor are uh, its uh, compounds caffeine, trigonelline, and um sugar so uh, sucrose or uh, saccharose um and these are sort of the three main components you find. I actually, I I pulled up a book that I um, got during my high school um, where they give the um, the amounts in uh, fresh and un in roasted coffee. It's about one point two percent dry weight is caffeine, uh, one percent dry weight is this uh, trigon uh, trigonelline, um, and then you have about um, eight percent is uh, the saccharose or sucrose. Um, these, which Do are you think from now on, like when people ask for the taste, instead of saying oaky or <laughs> astringent, you could say trigonelline? <laughs> I mean, like the trigonelline um, actually breaks down during roasting um, together with the sugars and uh, um, the peptides and amino acids. And then you get a lot of like Maillard and caramelization reactions mm -hmm. so that in the end, what the roasted coffee has about 25% of a dry weight is products of caramelization reactions. Um, so you change a lot of the chemical Cons um, constitution apart from the caffeine that remains fairly untouched by the roasting um, actually through like the evaporation of water uh, although now it's dry weight but uh, to, due to the decrease of the other compounds you actually increase the amount of uh, caffeine slightly in the roasted coffee um, but that's they just say in the mm -hmm. oh they say in the paper that the trigonelline is kind of found to be strongly correlated with high quality of coffee basically so this is one of the the key components that people say that's a good tasting coffee it's got this original trigonelline which then um kind of breaks down as you said into these really flavorsome compounds yeah so they had a couple of compounds that they could look for um and yeah the idea of, of the study is to increase like the understanding of coffee quality and how that that is linked to genetic markers so they try to actually find the, the genes that are involved in the end product of these um, of these compounds and 
also then of the sensory quality of the mm -hmm. coffee and um, like often when then and then I wanted to see what is the impact of different climates on these these uh, qualities and often when you want to do these experiments it gets really complex and complicated in your analysis if you have two different plants on different locations and you say one of them gets a lot of light and one of them gets a little bit of light and you just want to look at that effect you also have like watering differences soil differences and a lot of different things that can influence your analysis and so in this case they did something that i found quite smart is that they sampled from the same plant but they sort of divided it in the upper and the lower canopy part so at 1.7 meters there was the cutoff everything below that is the bottom the lower canopy and everything above that is the upper canopy and so they had the same plant growing on the same soil with the same irrigation but the top gets much more light than the bottom and they could mm -hmm. look at the difference this made to the outcome there's also a temperature difference i think between the upper canopy i think the upper mm -hmm. canopy has up to from one to four degrees um, more temperature than the lower canopy just because of that shading effect yeah i do also want to comment on the fact that their cutoff is 1.7 meters i didn't see anything that explained why they used 1.7 meters as a cutoff in their study so my bet is that somebody in the study is exactly 1.7 meters tall because that seems like the easiest way to sample something where you're like everything above my head that's above 1.7 meters everything below my head that's below yeah, like or I am going to bet you now 10 10 euros that one of those authors is 1.7 meters tall I mean just statistically it's very likely that one of these authors is just by chance 1.7 meters tall No but, but I'm going to say that that's the grounds for the study like if <laughs> if one of you is actually involved in the study and you know that that is the reason you use 1.7 meters, please tell me because your arm's going to owe me money. <laughs> and if, if, if you're in the study this, and it's not the reason, don't tell me because I don't want to pay your arm the money. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. Carry on. Okay. So they... They took the samples and they basically split the beans in half. So half of them they sent off to do like the kind of official stuff, run on the machines, um, do the transcript analysis. And then the other half, they did these sensory tests. Yeah, so then uh, they separated uh, their samples and then did the sensory tests. They did that on the whole beans, on the ground beans, and they gave them to a panel of experts, like taste experts. Um, and they would first individually sample these things and describe them. And they, they actually had it pretty formalized. I didn't go through mm. all of the methods, but there is sort of like a standard procedure to, t to sampling coffee. And this yeah, is what yeah, they adhere to. And they specifically say sensory preparation training and evaluated was guided by Australian standard XXX and yeah. standard sensory description as described by Smythe et al. So it's clearly like a, a thing. Can I take a second here to explain the best thing about the paper? Like the most amazing thing to me is table one, um, which is a summary of the qualitative descriptions given by the, pain, uh, the trained panel, sorry, during the screening of the whole and ground coffee beans. So you've got whole bean from the upper canopy and then you've got ground bean from the lower upper, um, oh, sorry, and then the, the, the ground bean and you've got the upper and lower canopy. Um, and they kind of explain the different like tasting notes, I would say, behind it. So I gave already an example before we introduced the paper. But some of these are just really impressive. So personally, my favorite is Chico Babies, which you might not even know what that is, Yoram. It's a um, <laughs> small like jelly baby, like a, 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 a gummy bear kind of thing that's okay. a little bit chocolate flavored. Um, 
And that's, I think, an Australian candy. Um, and I, then... I like Chinese yeah, medicine. <laughs> yeah, which seemed really vaguely unspecific, right? Like, yeah. which Chinese medicine? Um, Sichuan pepper also came in there. Tree sap. Again, which tree are you smelling the sap from? Jammy as a flavor. Um, mushroom. Burnt and then toast, but separately. Not burnt toast. Burnt <laughs> and toast as two different things within one upper canopy, medium odor intensity, ground bean. Um, nutmeg, nutty, cedar, barbecue spice, treacle, orange. <laughs> I mean, just literally every single word you can think of. Um, yeah. Amazing. I imagine I'm that so you, have, you have a catalog and it's sort of like a vocabulary and you, you sort of, you smell a thing and to distinguish it from another thing, you sort of give it a name and it's not necessarily like a very like straightforward name, but you sort of agree on the vocabulary and that's how you end up with these weird things. I often read this also like on wine bottles or something wherever they would write these taste desc flavor descriptions. And to me, they always sound ridiculous, but I attribute that to be to them being like a very technical term that for that just sounds like some like words that we know. I mean, I can fully admit that I am an untrained palate and a complete pleb when it comes to this, but uh, like for me, it's so hard to understand how one bean can have both onion pepper flavors and jammy flavors at the same time, like. <laughs> Is your jam tasting different? Is it pepper jam? Is it like a different thing from my jam? And how is that going with floral? Because <laughs> floral onion, burnt toast, black currant, pipe tattoo, woody, intense, roasted nut, herby, caramel, tree sap. This is, <laughs> it's amazing. And I mean, I, I, I would have like to see someone like, like remix like just from the descriptions of the ingredients, measure them out and remix <laughs> something. And in the end, it tastes like coffee. <laughs> they put in like the, the oh, tree yeah, sap and the jam herb. and the onion. And then <laughs> you drink like, Damn it, mm. we've used the wrong Chinese medicine again. Let's try number 8,063 <laughs> and like try again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think this is amazing. And I have to say, I, I do know some trained baristas who really can tell the difference, especially like with this, oh, it gives a more citrusy flavor or a more chocolatey flavor, depending on the water. So again, I am willing to admit that this is my ignorance here, but I found this fascinating. Like I couldn't stop staring at it. Yeah. And um, yeah. The okay. Science results. <laughs> yeah. I just want Sorry, to like, I derailed us there for a no, bit. No, I, I tried to find the, the summary of like the sensory test between like the bottom and the, the upper canopy. And in general, it's just like you have um, the, the bottom, like they summarize it that the, the lower canopy beans, they smell like milk, sweet, uh, sweet caramel, fresh, grassy, woody, and old perfume. While you have uh, roasty, fruity, citrus, raspberry, and lime, and beef jerky, and chrysanthemum, 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 flowery flavors um, from uh, the upper canopy. So Beef jerky chrysanthemum, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> next big trend um, uh. and then also from the from their chemical analysis they could also find that in the lower canopy they had uh, more caffeine more trigonaline and more sucrose so the key mm -hmm. influences on these coffee aroma could also be found in the chemical analysis uh, to be increased there so you want those lower beans is basically what came out of this that seems like that's where the money is yeah 
And then they did some um, RNA-Sec, so they looked at the transcriptomic data, that is the entirety of all the transcribed genes of the mRNA, and then you amplify it, analyze them, build a map of all of them, and then that gives you an idea how active genes are expressed. That doesn't necessarily mean how much protein of these genes is made, because there's another step of regulation there, but it's a good proxy um, to give you an idea which genes are active and which ones are inactive. Um, and with that, they could see that, for example, caffeine, um, the, the, the genes that are encoding the pathway for caffeine, they were not very much changed between these t- the two canopy positions, even though you had more caffeine in the bottom. Um, mm-hmm. But the trigonaline and the sucrose, um, they both had changes in their respective uh, pathways. Um, f- for the trigonaline, it means that the accumulation of this product, so the, pa- the genes were active earlier and they finished later during the fruit development. So it's actually over a longer span of time um, the pathway was active and that also results in just like more of this compound made, which in turn results in a better tasting coffee. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found out from the study, which I didn't know, is that light is required in caffeine synthesis. So this, I I never Mm. heard of that before. Um, And they also did, at one point, they did a co-expression analysis, which is kind of looking at... um, which genes behaved in the same ways during different stages of development or in the different um, canopy levels. So often this is something that we do to see um, if genes are kind of working together. So if two things are expressed in the same patterns under different conditions, they might be playing a similar role. And what I found quite weird is that the genes involved in um, the making the enzymes for like caffeine biosynthesis were co-expressed with some photosynthesis genes. Um, Although possibly more related to those ones involved in like light stress as opposed to actually just like normal photosynthesis, which is because although light is required in caffeine synthesis, the optimal requirement for how much light there is is actually quite low, which is based on previous research. So that was that was kind of cool to me. I never knew that. Yeah, I actually wondered if I should include in my thesis that's about photosystem one some like a very <laughs> random, very weird link to this study because it's like one photosystem one component is also correlated <laughs> with genes from caffeine synthesis. But I think I won't do that. Um yeah, and we're sort of like glossing over most of this because there's a pretty big chunk um, in the paper that's really looking in depth into the genes that are involved, how they change, um, how mm-hmm. they link to each other, because it's it's uh, it's much more complex than just like straight up saying yeah, caffeine is up or down. Um, but it's it's so you should have a look yourself if if you're interested in that, in in that. Uh, but the bottom line from this is um, that the lower canopy beans they are better, but that doesn't mean that we can sort of recreate the conditions for the lower canopy for the entire plant. We could have the mm-hmm. idea now that. Um, the lower canopy is shaded by the upper canopy and that makes the coffee beans in the bottom better. So why don't we just shade the entire plant so the entire plant get, makes better coffee? And the researchers say in the in the paper that this is probably not a good idea because the upper canopy exposed to a high light makes a lot of sugars and leaves, um, sort of mm. is, uh, provides a lot of energy that is then relocated within the plant to the lower canopy where it's then beneficial to the beans growing there. Um, and so the the sinks the energetic sinks can actually get more energy and therefore develop slower and better than the upper canopy ones mm-hmm. so as i said there wasn't a lot of um links to actual global climate change and how this would 
like influence this study would kind of how the findings of the study would um, have repercussions, except that they did see an effect of changing in temperature, perhaps because of this this temperature difference um, that changed the quality of the beans. So it might be something to take into consideration in the future if temperatures are rising. And of course, other um, abiotic conditions are also going to change with global tra- climate change. So that was kind of the integration of this, this angle. Um, but I think the main finding was that they kind of found some candidate genes that might be associated with the better flavors that they found in the um, lower canopy beans and then they also suggested that they might be able to use this knowledge to go a bit further and look at you know better cultivars or um like how to alter gene expression and and get these better tasting cultivars yeah and if you are growing coffee yourself in your garden uh, i don't think many people will be able to do that because they need a very specific climate but if you do that like separate Ah, with climate change (laughs) yeah maybe maybe suddenly in europe everybody's growing coffee um, separate the uh, lower canopy from the upper canopy so you have like a much better tasting coffee from the bottom canopy that was something i was thinking of i was thinking that will be the next stage like you know the we have like the third um what is it called third wave coffee at the moment yeah. like the the fourth wave or the fifth wave coffee will be instead of having like single origin coffee there'll be single level coffee and people will say i'm not just taking it from one um country or from one farm plot um i'm now taking it from a single tree but not even just that one tree i'm going to take it only from the lower canopy of that single tree because i have heard um in the study by who is it at al i'm being uh, cheng at al cheng at al that that is the the ultimate <laughs> source origin for my fancy coffee i only drink coffee that was grown below eye level <laughs> yes <laughs> eye level you are <laughs> so there was slower development of lower canopy beans produces better coffee from Cheng et al from the journal of experimental botany yeah we'll put the link in the bio in the show notes <laughs> in the bio not in the bio I've been on Instagram too much this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins Yeah. Do you want to start? I only have two things today. <laughs> ah, I have some... Can I start with a non-fun thing to start with? Yes. Um, I mean, it's not unfun, but it's kind of a bit more serious. There was something that came out um, in Nature Eco Evolution. So one of the nature journals, Ecology and Evolution. Um, and it's a comment. So this means it's kind of like somebody's idea as opposed to a, um, a research article. And it's called A Meeting Framework for Inclusive and Sustainable Science. And I think this is something that Yoram and I are both really interested and passionate in. And it's basically this discussion of how we can have more sustainable and inclusive science. And they came up with this idea of an ABCD conference format. So A stands for all continents, making sure you get representation, not just from Europe, not just from um, the Americas. B stands for balanced gender. C stands for carbon transport, trying to keep that as low as possible so that you don't have people like going to a conference on sustainability and flying thousands of miles to do that. And D stands for diverse backgrounds. So A, B, C, D, all continents, balanced gender, low carbon transport and diverse backgrounds. Um, And they kind of discuss how this should be the aim of conferences and indeed of science um, in the future. I think it's really cool that people are discussing this a lot more and I think it is something that's come up a lot in the recent weeks because of COVID because people now 
cannot change, uh, cannot travel for their conferences. And there have been a lot of switches to virtual meetings, which is actually kind of invigorated this discussion about how we can be more carbon neutral in our scientific activities. So I think that was quite a cool comment that came up and we'll put the link there and encourage you to read it. It is open access. Yeah, that sounds really cool. That's something that I, I'll have to also read up because this is, uh, in, in my work, we were organize, organizing a small conference and um, I, don't, I don't think I'm telling any secret when we didn't really look at any of these aspects when organizing it. Um, yeah, and if you're, if you're on Twitter, you'll see occasionally people talk about manuals, which is panels that only have men on them, or even worse, like conferences where just the entire speaker list is, is men, um, and not just men, usually like older, white, you know, yeah. cis <laughs> men in Europe or the US, like it's very global north, it's very, it's a problem. It's a really big problem and it's especially an issue because it's very cyclical in that it, it breeds the continuity of the system and it keeps the money in certain areas which then prevents other people from having access to research dollars which then prevents them from being able to do the research. So, I mean, it's cool that it's being discussed more. Obviously, we need a lot of work to be done still, but yeah, something worth looking at. Uh, I found something really cool on The Guardian. It's about a study, I think, in Nature Biotechnology, um, where scientists cr uh, created glowing plants, and this time plants that can actually, like, actually glow in the dark, because often when you read in popular science about glow-in-the-dark things like I, I read a story about glowing the dark cats in the past um it's often just um ubiquitous expression of gfp and gfp mm -hmm. doesn't glow in the dark gfp glows under uv light or and then fluorescence specific wavelength yeah and so it's not really glow in the dark but this time this is actually glow in the dark uh plants and actually glow in the light as well because what these plants do is that they um were modified with genes from um um, now I forgot it from a fungus, I think, um, that converts caffeic acid, which sort of ties in with our paper from today, uh, into okay. luciferines, which are the substrates uh, that can then be um, uh, transferred, uh, not transferred is the wrong word. These are the substrates that can be changed by luciferases into light emission. Um, and mm -hmm. then this pathway uh, goes on so that also the, the end products are converted again into, um, I think, caffeic acid or re uh, related compounds that are non-toxic. Because there were um, uh, trials in the past to have luciferase uh, expressed in the plants. Luciferase assays are something that we do in plants quite a lot, but usually it's externally applied. Um, you, you isolate like a tissue and then you uh, do your essay on this. You don't express um, all of the compounds of your luciferase essay in the plant because it's toxic to the plants usually. But with this very clever approach, they could get sort of the whole thing contained within the plant. And um, now this was just like a proof of concept study. Um, but they are obviously now improving the system so that we can use that to, for example, um, attach specific promoters to it so we can see when a promoter is active in which organ because then actually the organ will visibly light up um, mm -hmm. in uh, and they say you can even see it in the daylight like on day on the constitutive expression when it's made in the entire plant most of it is made in the flowers and they have some really beautiful pictures where I have like these eerie green glowing tobacco flowers um, 
where that are yeah expressing these uh, these genes from the fungus. So um, yeah, a cool story we put. Yaram's gonna link some of these shots to the podcast, but you should definitely go and check out the paper. Or also, there's some press releases out there as well, which yep. show the the beautiful glowing flowers, which are, which are really lovely, honestly. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, so I'll link to the Guardian article, and there's also all the links to the study and so on. Yeah, um, I want to give a science communication shout out to roboticist Colin Kaufman. So this is something that was published in New Scientist within the last couple of days, but I saw it, I think today or yesterday on the Nature Briefing. And it's some research that is looking at um, building a kind of biological robot. So it's mixing robotics with actual living tissue. um, And they linked a rat's spinal cord um, with 3D printed muscles and the rat spines could then control legs. So you've got like a robot that's like a flesh robot, which sounds absolutely disgusting. It um, sounds like this is one Rick and Morty episode. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but it's it's quite promising because they got nerve nerve growth um, from the, the tissue to the spine. And it's, I mean, it's obviously very important for future use in prosthetics and, and repair for, for humans. Um, but... The shout out to him goes because he has a quote which says, nobody will have scary rat spine hands. So um, he was just clarifying that when this does get to the stage of being useful for humans, it will probably involve human tissue and there will no longer be rat spines involved in the entire equation. And (laughs) I think it's very important that he stipulated this because I don't know, you could just see him going like, I shouldn't have to say this. No, I have to say this. Like, I'm just going to really be clear here. Like, when we do use this in the future, it's not going to be about rat spines anymore. Although this sounds to me like something somebody would say who will put scary rat spines on hands of people. It's like, (laughs) it's a psychological effect that if you state something, um, even if you negate a statement, you put the statement in somebody's head. Um, there is when when you update Microsoft Windows. At one point, um, I don't know if it still does that, but um, my my computer at one point said like all your files are exactly where you left them. I'm like, why are you telling me that? The the fact that you're telling me that makes me wonder if my files are actually still there. Like only if you mess with my files, you would then write a statement that you didn't mess with my files. Because well, it's I mean, sort of they implied. mess with them, but they put them back perfectly. They're like yeah. daring you to find out. Like they're challenging <laughs> you to be smarter than they are. There's also and this, you're not because you can't tell. There's also this joke of saying like, yeah, whenever I give somebody, uh, ask somebody if they want milk for the coffee, I'm saying it's not breast milk. And <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's not. But saying that makes everybody <laughs> uncomfortable, even if it's yeah. the truth. Whenever you're too specific. Yeah. That's, and that's, yeah. this is what this quote reminds me of. If somebody's like, yeah. No, you won't have scary red spine hands in the future. It's like, I didn't think I would have that. Why are you saying that? Will I have for that? For me, I think that also works for positive adjectives. And I think I've shared this with you at least, Joran, before. Whenever I see a food or drink product that has a, a positive adjective as part of the description, I don't trust it immediately. So if it says, like, tasty Italian wine, like... Why did you have to put the word tasty there? Like, you're just trying too hard to convince me it's tasty. And it's it's super suspicious to me. Like, yeah, it shouldn't be involved. Yeah. Okay, anyway, creepy rat spine hands. <laughs> um, I have some a little bit of tomato body horror. 
Um, I found something on Twitter. Katie Mack from Astro Katie. I think she's also drawing um, uh, a webcomic, although I'm not sure about that. Anyway, Astro Katie. Um, she just forgot some tomatoes on the counter for, uh, for too long and she shared the pictures of what happens then and it's really body horror you see um, uh, I don't know did you click on the link in the in our document and see the picture you have like the tomato and you have the skin and you have things poking from inside against the skin um, something ah. wants to burst out there and then she opens it and like just peels the skin off and then you have like the, the flesh of the tomato and you have like the green germinated seeds pushing through um, and then she opened also the flesh of the tomato and they have like a gooey inside there and if you wouldn't know that it's a tomato and it, maybe if you would play with the colors of the photo a little bit it absolutely looks like something alien something from outer it's space horrific. but it's just a tomato it's just a tomato that does what a tomato does it like the seeds at one point they germinate because it's a fruit that's made to germinate um, so I think um, any of you who have children at home and are trying to occupy your children, why not try to horrify them as well? I mean, <laughs> like the reason we find this stuff, I mean, obviously probably don't horrify your kids. But one of the reasons we do find this stuff so scary is because we have this detachment from how plants grow. And also, I mean, with animals as well, like we eat meat, but we don't really know how animals are killed and we find it very disgusting. So probably it's healthy for us to better understand these processes which are so integral to our survival right so yeah at the same time body horror is a thing that's deeper than just this um like the our the things that we are used to it's like the disturbance of bodies of things that are sort of very in, uh, close to our identity even if it's a it's a tomato but it's like it's an object where we have a certain perception of it and it's disturbed in a in a in a way um and yeah, even I mean, I'm looking at a tomato. I wouldn't think that there's an alien inside. I know that it's germinating, but just having something sort of push against a skin-like thing makes it uneasy. Mm. Even if it would be a completely neutral technical installation, if you would have sort of a rubber skin and things poking from underneath against it, it would still make me very uneasy. Even though yeah, but do you think somebody who was like X years ago who was gardening normally and this was part of the normal process, I, I'm, I'm not sure, probably people anyway back in those days would collect the seeds and dry them, but do you think other people would be, like, we see it as similar to the body because we're not familiar with the tomato object as like a sprouting living being? Like, do you think... I don't know. They just wouldn't see it as, like, they wouldn't have the body horror because for them it's like, no, that's clearly a tomato, what are you even talking about? Maybe, maybe that would be, but... Um yeah, I find them eerily not disturbing, but like interesting and like slightly, um, slightly disgusting, but not too bad. Quite fun. Um, I can do one more sciencey thing and yeah. then a couple of shout outs, I guess. So um, the sciencey thing is from I fucking love science, IFL science. Um, it's a discussion of the Antarctic explorer who, it's called, sorry, I'll, I'll do the title, Journal of Antarctic Explorer who witnessed penguin debauchery and lived in an ice cave to be made available. Um, so this is one of the original expeditions trying to get to the complete South Pole. So there was two teams that went at the same time. There was um, Robert Scott and there was, um, I forget his first name, Amundsen, Roald Amundsen. Um, Scott actually got to the South Pole, but 
later the Amundsen and then the entire team from Scott basically died on the way back in some kind of fairly horrific ways. I think there was eating of husky liver which caused vitamin A poisoning involved. I think some guy also said I'll be back. I maybe I'm going for a walk. I may be some time and, and disappeared. It was it was quite horrific um, because this was exploration in the olden days. But one of the guys associated with the expedition didn't actually go to like on that trek to the South Pole. He instead kind of stayed um, in, I don't know, on the coast, I guess, and was making some observations of um, Adelie penguin colonies. And he wrote about their behavior and their lifestyle, but he also wrote about their weird sexual behaviors. So um, these penguins are known to be homosexual and also have sex between unpaired individuals, which apparently was shocking, but I mean, not super surprising. But they do also <laughs> do some pretty disgusting stuff. So they're a bit into necrophilia. They're a bit into rape. Sorry for that. And they're a little bit into abuse of the chicks. Um, but at the time, he found all of his sexual behavior so weird that he wrote it in a kind of code in his diaries. And then, of course, when he went back, he published his story about the Adelie Penguin life, but he omitted the bit about um, the sex. What I like is that he did write down the penguin's sexy, saucy tales, but he put it in a separate pamphlet, which apparently was like privately distributed amongst, and it says here, a handful of experts, but I'm guessing it was like this, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, check out what penguins do, um, <laughs> handing it to his like close science friends. So um, there's a article about this on IFL Science, but apparently this is also going to become public that we can read the disgusting things that these penguins were doing a hundred years ago and probably are still doing now. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I penguin just, sex. <laughs> I just thought of penguins as being these romantic animals that stay together, monogamous, like taking care and yeah. raising the child. And I'm, I'm I, a little yeah, bit... Yeah, there's definitely some elements that are very, like the necrophilia, the rape, the, um, the, yeah molesting of the, the the baby that's really not not savory at all um but they're also cute <laughs> yeah i it's, i, <laughs> I don't know what to comment on it <laughs> let's move on um i i mostly like the idea that he would write it in a secret code to like cover it up in case somebody wrote his uh, read his diaries so. <laughs> yeah I have nothing anymore. I, I only read COVID, like I avoided reading COVID news, but there's nothing else happening or reported. Um, like Twitter, it's just COVID. News are just COVID. So I ran out of cool facts. I'm sorry. Um, I have something else cool to do with your spare time. So um, National Theatre, so the, the British National Theatre is currently doing National Theatre at Home. Um, which is that they are doing really professional video recordings of some of their famous plays and making them available on YouTube. They come out every Thursday night, but I think they're available for up to a week or, or maybe even more after that. Last week, um, my close friends and I, who I studied Shakespeare with in school, we watched Twelfth Night, which was really amazing. And I think this week's show is Frankenstein. So if you're really fed up of Netflix and you want to feel a little bit fancy and cultured um, this is a great way to see some amazing actors and some amazing um, shows generally from the comfort of your own home if you can donate you can donate money to the National Theatre but it is completely free and it has big names in it so the Frankenstein coming up has um, 
Benedict Cumberbatch and somebody else who I forget. Anyway, definitely check that out. It was really fun um, watching that. Yeah, cool. I only know the, the German club scene doing their live streams. There's also an app for that now uh, on the App Store that's United We Stream, whereas every night there's club music. It's very different style so yesterday i i uh, tuned into it and it was very like, it wasn't my kind of music i'm really into like electro stuff but this was too weird but sometimes it's really great um so it's a it's a little bit hit and miss but united we stream is also a good place if you don't want to watch theater but have a dance at home or have a little rave in your kitchen um check out that i think as i, I talked about this in the past already but now there's an app for your phone um final thing is a cat fact have you got one yarn no um i have a tweet that our friend just shared with us so actually a mutual friend so it's it's kind of a joint fact um martin reich uh published something which is a the impact of cat on the biomass production and leaf index and uh, leaf area index of radish and it's just two photos with an experimental design with control and treatment plot. And it's basically a um, small planter filled with radish seedlings. And in the first photo, a cat is sitting on half of the, the radish seedlings. That is called cat treatment. And we have control <laughs> to the right-hand side. And then in the second um, photo, you see the outcome of the cat treatment experiment. And fairly unsurprisingly, the control plants are doing quite a lot better as far as biomass and leaf area than the cat sat um, thing. So again, we'll share that link in the show notes. You can check it out. <laughs> it's a very light cat, though. Like it says three kilogram of cat. Like that's a normal cat size. Your cats are just obscene. Like my my light cat is four and a half kilograms, and she's like a thin little kitty. And like my heavy cat, he got really fat now. I think he's easily six kilos now. But it's because he's fat, because he's stealing the other cat's food. Like they're getting food separate, uh, separated from each other now. Yarm is like reviewer number three when like this is presented as a paper. And you're like, well, I mean, it's fine. But you just have like on off. I'd really like to see like a, con a time series <laughs> maybe or like different levels of repression of the genes. So like if we repress <laughs> it with different weights of cats, then we'd get really a more nuanced understanding of the, the conclusions of this study. <laughs> And that all leads to like an entire year of repetition of experiments yeah. <laughs> with more cats. Like, and it's not too much to ask, but could you buy some more cats? And like, introducing please go new, and buy four new more errors cats. because the cats start digging some of them and others don't, and then um, mm. makes it all. I'm definitely doing similar experiments with a um, very jerky squirrel in my backyard at the moment. He keeps on trying to dig things up. But I found yeah. I I saw um, uh, baby foxes today, like young foxes today in the in the park nearby, um, which was very exciting to me. That's quite. And cute. it's already the end of the story, but it's like they jumped through the <laughs> through the woods, and it was it was quite fun to see. They frolicked. I think they I think frolicked. Find That's exactly what they did. And I don't yeah. know if it's because there's less uh, traffic and less people now in the parks. Um, or it's maybe just a season. I don't know when foxes usually get their young, but I guess it must be springtime. I guess a bit of both, though, probably. Like, normally you wouldn't see them because there'd be lots of other people in the park. They'd be have run away already. Um, but now you get the luck. Yeah. Um, I think the final thing, well, we can mention that Yoram and I have been doing some secret be business recently. <laughs> yeah. Which involves us reading non-science things. Um, 
And that should be coming out in a couple of weeks, I guess. That will be revealed soon. But keep your eyes open for that. Yeah, so keep keep uh, checking our Twitter where we will definitely be posting about this um, as soon as it's out. Yeah. And then the very final, final thing is that today is May Day. So I also wrote a really short, silly post about a plant that is associated with May Day. Because in my experience, I've found that no matter what the holiday is, if you Google holiday name and plant associated with this holiday, there's always going to be someone who thinks there's something. Um, and as a nerd, I like to write about those plants. So go and check out our post on, on the blog today. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think that's it, right? Um, you can follow us on social media where we, you will be posted and up keep kept updated about all, all our secret business. Uh, on <laughs> Twitter, we're at Plants Pipettes. On Instagram and Facebook, it's usually me you're talking to. We're at Plants and Pipettes. Uh, we have a lovely website with about two articles. Actually, I think even if we are both injured, we manage to post two uh, articles a week um, uh, about plant science and all things related to molecular plant biology. It's uh, plantsandpipettes.com. Check that out. As always, if you have ideas you'd like to suggest something that we should write about or you have found some really cool science you want us to hear about, let us know. We also like to have comments on the Facebook page, on the Instagram page. We like ratings on our podcast, whatever podcatcher you're using. Please let us know yeah. what you find to be great, what you hate. That's always really helpful for us. Yeah, thanks again to Adriana uh, for today's paper suggestion. That was a very nice paper. It was a fun read. And you pretty much did our homework for us because we didn't have to go looking for stuff. <laughs> yeah, please, <laughs> please send in papers. It takes so, it, like it saves us so much time. Um, and uh, and thanks for making it a cool one and not a bad one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that too. <laughs> and uh, our opening and closing music is, as always, Caravana by Philip Gross. And talk to you next week. Bye. That's it. See you later, guys.